Recently, attention has been focused on a new generation of anti-obesity medications, which have produced large amounts of weight loss in clinical trials. Although these drugs aren't covered by Medicare for obesity treatment, a bill that would expand coverage of anti-obesity medications has gained momentum in recent years. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Ashley Leach, an assistant professor in the Department of Health Policy at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Dr. Leach has co-authored a perspective article about the value of Medicare coverage of anti-obesity medications. Dr. Leach, what's important to know about these new anti-obesity medications? How are they used and how effective are they? In 2021, the FDA approved the brand name semaglutide for chronic weight management in adults with an indication of obesity or being overweight with at least one weight-related condition, such as high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, or high cholesterol. Semaglutide is really the first approved drug for chronic weight management in adults since 2014. And there are several others in the pipeline in addition to semaglutide with expected approvals between 2023 and 2026. Older medications were typically oral, whereas the new medications are daily or weekly self-injection. So for instance, semaglutide is a once-weekly injection. What's really important here, though, is that while the older medications typically resulted in a 5 to 10% weight loss, newer therapies and those anticipated to be approved in the future are reaching 15 to over 20% weight loss. So after rebates and discounts, semaglutide costs nearly $14,000 per year or a little over $1,100 a month. Lifetime use of these medications is likely to be required to prevent weight regain. And as I had previously mentioned, new generation anti-obesity medications such as semaglutide are effective in producing weight loss and in fact, more effective than previous generation anti-obesity medications. However, semaglutide is also over 20 times more expensive than previous generation anti-obesity medications. In health economics, we typically assess medications based on value, which essentially can be quantified as outcomes relative to cost. And from a pure value perspective, the price of semaglutide simply doesn't align with its added benefit over previous generation anti-obesity medications. So even under very generous cost-effectiveness assumptions, semaglutide's added benefit compared to both lifestyle modification alone and the next best previous generation anti-obesity medication, which is fentramine with topiramate, does not align with its cost. So until the cost of semaglutide reduces to less than $10,000 per year, the medication won't be considered cost-effective compared to lifestyle modification alone. And it would actually need to reduce far below this to around five to $6,000 per year to be considered cost-effective compared to the previous generation anti-obesity medication, fentramine with topiramate. What's important here is that fentramine with topiramate is not as effective as semaglutide, but it's also 20 times less expensive. So just for comparison purposes, semaglutide has been associated with around a 13.7 percentage point greater decrease in weight within one year compared to placebo. And in comparison, the previous generation anti-BCD medication, fentramine with topiramate, has been associated with a 9 percentage point greater decrease in weight 
within the one year compared to placebo. As you say in your article, the Medicare program is currently prohibited from covering prescriptions for weight loss, but that could change if the so-called Treat and Reduce Obesity Act becomes law. So can you explain the history of the prohibition against covering prescriptions and then what would change under the proposed bill? Absolutely. So some state Medicaid programs and private payers cover anti-obesity medications, but the Medicare program, which provides prescription drug coverage under Part D to more than 47 million beneficiaries, is actually prohibited by law from covering prescriptions for the primary indication of weight loss. Medicare can cover the same active ingredient for a different indication, such as diabetes, but not for a primary indication of weight loss. This ban likely has stemmed from concerns over the use of the medications for things like cosmetic purposes, stigma against people with heavier bodies, and also a long history of post-marketing withdrawals of weight loss medications because of some serious side effects. So these are all examples that have contributed to this prohibition. So the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act is a bipartisan bill that seeks to expand Part D coverage to include medications for obesity treatment and weight management for people who are overweight, among other measures to really broaden things like behavioral therapy as well as community-based lifestyle programs. The bill was first introduced in 2013 and has recently gained a lot of momentum with the FDA approval of semaglutide and the pending approval of others. You and your colleagues calculated how much Medicare could potentially spend on anti-obesity medications if they were covered under Part D for obesity treatment. Could you summarize your findings for us? Yeah. So if or when Medicare decides to cover anti-obesity medications, the budget impact is likely to be quite substantial. As we noted in our perspective piece, the CDC estimates that the obesity prevalence of adults greater than 60 years is nearly 42%. So even with just a 10% uptake in medication, Medicare and its beneficiaries could spend nearly $27 billion per year for the brand name semaglutide, which represents around 18% of current Medicare Part D annual spending. Even if we were really conservative in our estimate by limiting our projections to individuals with obesity diagnoses and Medicare claims, which is around 21% of Medicare beneficiaries versus our previous estimate of the 42%, spending would still be over $13 billion or 9% of the Part D spending. So if all beneficiaries with obesity, so going back to that 42% figure, if all of these beneficiaries used semaglutide, the cost would exceed the entire Medicare Part D budget. And even if most new uptake is of these older generics, low rates of uptake of the new therapies would still have a substantial budget impact, easily reaching five to almost 20% of Part D spending. So overall, depending on the types of medications really used by beneficiaries and their rate of use, it's likely that Part D premiums would also need to increase to accommodate spending on these products. And to the extent that other payers follow Medicare's lead, these costs actually could be felt throughout the entire U.S. healthcare system. You talk in your article about unresolved questions about the balance of benefits and risks associated with anti-obesity medication use, particularly among older adults. So in what areas is evidence still lacking and why might there be more concerns in this population? 
The safety of anti-obesity medications for older adults remains questionable. So the cost-effectiveness evidence reflects the lifetime cardiovascular risk estimates using patients with an average age of 45 years living with major weight-related risk factors or obesity. While we know that anti-obesity medications are effective in improving outcomes such as weight, hemoglobin levels, as well as things like systolic blood pressure and waist circumference, long-term studies are really needed to clarify how medication-induced changes in these markers translate to health outcomes. And this is especially important for older adults. So younger populations are typically included in clinical trials focused on obesity, The mean age across clinical trials to date is around 47, and older adults may have already experienced the health problems associated with long-term obesity, which these medications are really intended to help someone avoid. And if they haven't experienced them, then it might be because they're less predisposed to that condition in the first place. Side effects may also be of greater concern in older populations. So for instance, The potential decreases in body mass that are often documented during anti-obesity medication use may be riskier in the Medicare population who may already have low lean body mass at the start than among younger individuals. In addition, the gastrointestinal side effects associated with anti-obesity medications such as nausea and diarrhea could also be more serious in older adults. And so there are really some important questions that really need to be answered about health outcomes before we should generalize this research performed in younger populations. Finally, what do you think are the chances that the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act will become law? And what issues do you think should be addressed before it moves forward? That's a great question. So I think there are still a lot of unknowns, and it would actually be really thoughtful for Congress and CMS to fully weigh these trade-offs before passing any legislation that could have an impact of this magnitude. The large potential Part D budget impact of anti-obesity coverage could further exacerbate health inequities if our premiums rise because of these high-priced medications. And so One really obvious solution is for manufacturers to lower their prices to match the benefit of their drugs. But in addition to this price value problem that we're experiencing, there's also an evidence problem, like I had mentioned, regarding the effects of these medications on older adults. Despite the positive evidence we have on healthier, younger populations, the newer anti-obesity medications are still not cost-effective, and these cost-effectiveness outcomes will likely be even worse among the older beneficiary group. So Congress and CMS should really carefully consider these potential trade-offs associated with these anti-obesity medications. And then lastly, prevention should always be part of the conversation when addressing the obesity epidemic in the United States. It really shouldn't be an either or between both prevention and treatment. Thank you, Dr. Leach.